This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. And once again, we turn to one of the great historical authors, Nathaniel Philbrick who has written page-turners about history, including Bunker Hill, Valiant Ambition, Travels with George, and the book simply titled Mayflower, though that is really the only simple thing about it. Ned, it is good to have you on one of these holiday specials again, and we're going to fill in some blanks on the Mayflower story. I also want to get to an offshoot of that story, very important for our history, and sadly, little known to most Americans, which is King Philip's War. But first, you got into this story. How people get into stories always interests me. You got into the story because you moved to Nantucket, hitherto known as a light ship, um, a jumping off place for Moby Dick, and the subject of a thousand limericks, not one of which I can repeat here. Right. Well, it was coming to Nantucket in 1986. Uh, I was very happy to come because it was the port of the Pequod, uh, and uh, which then led me into the history of Nantucket which then led me into the history of New England because I had to put Nantucket in some kind of perspective. And that's when I took up for the first time in a serious way, William Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation, uh, which is uh, the governor of uh, uh, Plymouth Colony's uh, account of uh, the year, his, his experiences with Plymouth Plantation. And it's one of the great books of the 17th century. It it, for the first, you know, I had grown up uh, going to doing. Uh, I had grown up uh, a, attending uh, Thanksgiving pageants uh, in elementary school, but this was a totally different take on what happened uh, uh, in Plymouth Colony. This was William Bradford talking about the the pain, the loss, the the ecstasy. It was all there. And Bradford's an important part of the story, as we will find out as you and I talk here. But one of the things I find so striking, and of course, people did not live as long in those days, so people had to accomplish more and were expected to accomplish more early on. But Bradford, who is so important of this, um, along with many of the other people, including one of the captains, were teenagers. Yeah. I mean, the youth of everyone is just amazing, I think, for, for the rest of us, particularly in my case, as we get much older. But um, uh, yeah, it was a, a predominantly young group, uh, and uh, they were on, you know, heading 
to the advent, adventure of their lives, or it could also be the catastrophe of their lives. It was you know, a mystery, and uh, they set off from England into the unknown. Let's go back a little bit first and, and just find out who these people are. What were the pilgrims all about? I mean, when they were in England, which they left, then to Holland, then to America, they had to meet in secret. Why? Yeah, because what they were practicing uh, uh, was illegal in England. Uh, it was outside the Church of England. Uh, and uh, so they, they had to meet in secret, um, and they were basically outlaws, which is what forced them to go to Holland, which had a much more liberal attitude towards religious beliefs. Uh, but once in Holland, uh, where they were for uh, about a decade, uh, they began to realize that their children were all becoming Dutch. And uh, despite the fact that uh, they, were, they were in Holland, they were still proudly English. So what to do? Uh, well, go to uh, the New World, as it was known, and where they could be English and practice their own religious beliefs. They could also practice what they do. And I think one of the problems they had in Holland was essentially that they were farmers. They weren't city people. So they go to sea to the New World. But, you know, again, these are mostly farmers. They're not sailors. So are they even prepared to make that perilous a journey? No, these, uh, the, what, the people we think of as the pilgrims really had no idea what they were getting into and uh, were not prepared for, for something like this. Few people were <laughs> at that point, other than professional explorers, people like that. Uh, these were people driven by religious belief. Uh, they, they believed it was the will of God uh, for them to seek a new place to practice their religion, uh, a, a more pure form of religion from their standpoint, where they needed to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. And so, um, yes, they were completely unprepared, uh, didn't even have a, a, a map you could trust of the region where they ended up. It was um, a, a disaster in the making. Yeah, I, I mean, they picked the wrong time of year. Uh, they had, at one point, a leaky ship. I mean, this really started out as if it was going to be an, an utter catastrophe. Yeah, and uh, particularly when it finally, they're finally goodbye to England, uh, when they left Plymouth, uh, the, the, this, the, the city of Plymouth. You know, as you said, it was the worst time of year to embark on a, a voyage uh, to, to America. Uh, they, would, they would get there in late fall with, with winter coming on, the absolute worst time to try to create a, a new uh, colony in an unknown world. And yet they felt this is what they uh, were supposed to do. So off they went. The trip over was miserable, and it was also filled with illness. And this may sound odd in part because they ran out of beer. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, uh, the drinking water uh, in the, at that point uh, uh, was always unreliable, uh, particularly if it was drinking water that had been uh, f taken from a city. And so uh, beer was the way you um, you got liquid uh, that was not uh, full of disease, and you know this was what the staff of life from their standpoint. But by the time they were approaching uh, America, they were running out of beer. This was serious, uh, <laughs> and and so uh, they looked to the 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 appearance of land um, uh, with with great expectation. Uh, although you know where were they going to get beer uh, in America? Now, 
point out, and and your book makes this really really clear and goes into really great detail, as it does in so many things that even those of us who have studied this just didn't know. Not everybody on the Mayflower was a pilgrim, and this actually becomes important. Uh, some were called strangers, and who were they? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think if you are an Englishman, uh, you would have regarded the strangers as the normal people, and um, the <laughs> the pilgrims would have been the aliens, um, because the strangers uh, were people of you know Church of England people, uh, normal um, uh, lower class English people, out to g- get a better life. And um, while the pilgrims uh, were united by their their Puritan beliefs, and um, which were illegal in England, and so from the very beginning, you have on the Mayflower a divide, uh, and I think a very American divide, where you have you know one group in one camp, another group in a different camp, and they do not see eye to eye. And so from the very beginning, there is division uh, aboard the the Mayflower uh, that will manifest itself once they're on land and trying to create a community uh, for the long term. The need to get along with these strangers, with these non-pilgrims, and and we should point out, and people say, well, you know, they're Puritans and the other. Actually, the Pilgrims were a, a tougher bunch uh, than the Puritans. The pure Puritans who come later, who come with the permission of the Church of England and settle much of the rest of Massachusetts. So these are people who are really in bed with the king as much as they still love England. But they need to get along with these strangers. And it's important they get along because the Pilgrims want to start what is essentially a religious colony. This leads to the Mayflower Compact, which is a fascinating document. It is. You know, I, uh, the claims have made uh, about it that are, are perhaps unjustified. But the fact is the circumstances under which this group of people who had just uh, experienced the, a worse nightmare of a voyage uh, were on the uh, edge of a, uh, on the coast of a land about which they knew nothing, uh, you know, we're already beginning to um, become divided. Do they, you know, have a rebellion? No. Uh, they put pen to paper and craft the Mayflower Compact, in which they agree, uh, both uh, pilgrims and strangers, to uh, to follow the the dictates of a civil society. And for the pilgrims, this was big uh, because you know they they were. They, they were out to, to create their own theocracy. To, um, uh, that's why they were making this voyage. But they realized that to make this thing work, to, to have any chance at survival uh, at this t- late time of year in this unknown area, they needed to cooperate. And for that, they needed a document uh, that, uh, in which they agreed to uh, live under civil law. And thus it begins. We have more of the Thanksgiving Day special just ahead from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. We'll continue our conversation with Nathaniel Philbrick. Now, when the pilgrims arrive, there's an, there may be an irony here, but I need to know from you whether there is. The Native Americans, the Wampanoag na- natives who were there, knew about Europeans, knew about them for a century because there had been uh, Europeans who had come and had been offshore and 
come on shore and there were stories about them and people taken into slavery and, and all of that. But did the pilgrims expect Native Americans? How much study and had the people on the Mayflower done about who they might meet, especially since they weren't at all where they expected to end up? Yeah, they they had uh, they knew something of the Native peoples, uh, but what they uh, but what they tended to focus on were the the myths of the Native people of 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 cannibalism of of terrible violence, and so. Um, all their expectations were that you know they were going to be confronted uh, with savages. When the irony here is that um, the, the the Wampanoag uh, knew much more, uh, as you implied, knew much more about the English than the Pilgrims knew about the Native peoples, and uh, uh, it, it was. You know, the, and the other th- factor was that for the three years uh, preceding the arrival of the Mayflower, a series of European spawned epidemics had been ravaging the native peoples al- along the coast of what we call New England, uh, reducing their populations by as much as by 80 to 90 percent uh, with these terrible diseases for which they had uh, no immunity. And so, uh, when the pilgrims arrive, uh, they are, it's a landscape that has changed radically in just the last three years uh, due to these diseases. And it's in flux. It's, it's, um, it's, it's just all sorts of things happening. And once again, um, uh, the, the passengers on the Mayflower really have no clue as to what they're about to get themselves involved in. Now, we mentioned Squanto in another segment of this special, but his story is worth telling because he is quite the guy, proficient in his native language, of course, proficient in English. And for anyone who thinks the Native Americans are just this, you know, simple people worshiping rainbows and unicorns, Squanto ends up playing both sides against one another and entirely for himself until it blows up in his face. What's his story and how important a role is he in, in the story of the Mayflower and the story of that Plymouth colony? Oh, Squanto is one of the more fascinating uh, figures in the history of, of this country. Uh, he had been abducted uh, by European explorers and ended up, uh, after time in Spain, ended up in the streets of London and where he learned English. And he, uh, he would uh, eventually... Uh, go with another explorer uh, back to uh, America, eventually make his way from Nova Scotia down to New England um, and uh, come to uh, his hometown of of Patuxet, uh, which would become Plymouth, and found uh, his village entirely empty of people. Everyone had either died or moved on uh, in the midst of these terrible plagues. I mean, can you imagine uh, what you know was going through his head? And he ended up um, basically a captive uh, with Massasoit, who was the head of the the Wampanoag, uh, uh, and their band was known as the Poconokets within within the Wampanoag, and um, and Massasoit didn't entirely trust Squanto. Um, uh, and with good reason, because Squanto was the one person who knew both sides of it uh, when it came to the, the, the Wampanoag's interactions with the English. He knew both languages, and that gave him tremendous power. Um, you know, he could, uh, 
he knew what both sides were saying, and he could, as the conduit between them, he could control the message that was being delivered on either side. And, you know, we're not, you know, completely clear on what Squanto's motivations were, but um, uh, he was out for himself. Um, he He had seen how the Wampanoag had been ravaged by disease, uh, were um, in danger of being taken over by their neighboring Narragansetts, who had uh, not been uh, uh, troubled in the same way by disease. And he saw a political opportunity uh, to make himself potentially the new leader. And so his interactions between the two, because Bradford would uh, 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 use Squanto as an interpreter and rely upon him, uh, as it would only gradually unfold, they would realize that Squanto had an agenda of his own. Yeah, I mean, Squanto at one point is telling the, the Native Americans to try and keep fear on both sides that the pilgrims had barrels of plague that they could just unleash anytime they wished. Yes, yeah. I mean, and uh, and so this would was to strike fear into the Wampanoag that, and look, you know, I'm the one that can keep them from unleashing this. So do what, you know, they say, and particularly what I tell you, they say. And so, um, yeah, and it took a while for the uh, pilgrims to realize, you know, that he was playing a game here. And it almost got to the point where um, uh, Plymouth Plantation was lost in a a, a, a war. Uh, but luckily, um, diplomacy reigned in one form or another, and they were to avoid that catastrophic uh, violence that would have completely destroyed Plymouth Colony. There is a lot going on here with the Wampanoags. It's one of the reasons for it. what we now celebrate is a Thanksgiving feast. Um, the Wampanoags, because they've been wiped out by plague, being so subjected to attacks by the Narragansett that they're looking upon the pilgrims as allies, even though they don't really trust them because the last time Europeans show up, again, they they took a lot of people as slaves. But one of the problems that the Wampanoags had with the pilgrims after a while is that while Native Americans were dying of the plague and were reducing in numbers, how do I put this? The uh, pilgrims were making like bunnies. <laughs> well, you know, the, 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 the fertility rate is a kind of extraordinary. I mean, there's John Howland, um, who uh, by all rights should have drowned during the voyage. He fell off the Mayflower uh, and was uh, lucky enough to grab a line uh, with which the sailors pulled him back. Well, he would uh, live uh, uh, to, uh, you know, lead a long life, marry and have something like 80 more than 80 grandchildren uh, by the time he died. And so, um, you know, this kind of birth rate, um, uh, suddenly the pilgrims are outgrowing uh, their their base in Plymouth. They're moving to Cape Cod and throughout, you know, south what's now south of Boston and moving on and taking land and pushing the native peoples aside as best they can. Well, the, the native peoples, the Wampanoag are are uh, trading, you know, selling land, because initially it looks like there's plenty to share. But as the, the, um, the, the pilgrims continue to grow uh, exponentially, that's no longer the case by the second generation. Yeah, it goes from, hey, this is a good uh, military alliance and also, you know, good business deal. We've got trade to all of a sudden, wait, they're everywhere and we're being pushed out of our homes. Uh, just one or two more things about 
this part of the story because I want to get to King Philip's War. Uh, because as I said at the beginning of our interview, it's something that's extremely important to American history that most Americans are completely and utterly unfamiliar with. But let's mention Miles Standish, the lovely figure on the Thanksgiving crockery, you know, that uh, says what John Alden means and and Priscilla just uh, falls in love and all of that. Miles Standish was an unbelievably horrible man. Well, uh, he was their military officer. Uh, so they looked to him to be the strong guy. But yeah, he was, um, you know, at one point he led uh, basically a, a guerrilla operation um, against uh, the Massachusetts uh, people uh, in the Weymouth, currently the, the Weymouth, Massachusetts area, uh, which they basically lure um, the leaders into a dinner and then attack them with knives and stab them to death and cut off the head of one of the warriors and uh, bring it back to Plymouth Colony, where it is uh, placed on uh, on a spike in front of the entrance to the fort as, as warning uh, to, to all the native peoples. And, um, and this strikes fear uh, into the native peoples throughout the region. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is not how the original intention was. Their pastor, uh, uh, Reverend Robertson, uh, Robinson, back in uh, Holland, had beseeched them to to make friends with the native people. But with, uh, uh, you know, this was not that. This was uh, ruling uh, by the sword, and um, uh, and but it would. Uh, the way events would shake out, it would ultimately strengthen uh, their uh, alliance with the Wampanoag, with Massasoit. But it was, you know, when you look back in retrospect, it was a warning uh, of things to come. Stay here for more of the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. Happy Thanksgiving. This is the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio, and I'm Gil Gross. We've been learning about the pilgrims from Nathaniel Philbrick. Even Native Americans who sided with the English, sided with the settlers, were imprisoned by them. Oh, it, I mean, you know, we, we think of, um, you know, slavery as being, you know, from a different generation, uh, a different time. But no, there was African slavery, um, but there was also native slavery in New England. And in fact, what was uh, the, the way the, um, the, the English authorities dealt with it was, you know, you captured as many men, women, and children as possible. Those who were not killed were then shipped to the uh, sugar plantations in, this, in the Caribbean, uh, which were death traps. And, um, you know, so you had, uh, you know, in the years after uh, on the other side of the King Philip's War, there was the Sea Flower, a um, not the Mayflower, the Sea Flower, a ship filled with uh, Wampanoag prisoners uh, that uh, sailed south to the Caribbean to sell these prisoners to get them out of New England. And um, this is not the legacy that I think most Americans look to when they think of the Mayflower. There's another problem wrapping this up that this brings up, and that. The Native Americans, of course, they start, you know, the, the long trail of tears that, that leads to uh, their present diminishment in, in America from this. Uh, but even the Puritans become dependent on England 
to win the war for provisions and everything else. So the Puritans hope for their own independence are also kind of dashed by this. Oh yeah, it was a completely self-destructive conflict in in many ways um, because you know this would uh, you're right the Engl- they they relied on English uh, English help the uh, to to survive the conflict uh, the standard of living uh, in New England would would take decades um, to uh, get back to the way it had been before King Philip's War. This they, this was no victory for the English. This was um, the conflict that kind of destroyed the world that their parents had created on both sides. And so, um, um, I mean, to my mind, uh, the story of Plymouth Plantation is ultimately a tragedy that foretells in so many ways what will happen in the United States uh, as the country moves west, all the way ultimately to the Pacific. And even Bradford, who we talked about earlier when the Pilgrims first get here, eventually sees what became Massachusetts as a failure. He, he wanted this small religious community. He didn't want this, this big thing that was going to be controlled by England. And the founding fathers, such as John Adams, you know, and all the people who came out of New England later, probably would have frightened the hell out of him. Yeah. I mean, this is the real poignancy of the story uh, when it comes to William Bradford. Um, this was someone who, you know, believed that they were doing this because the Lord told them to do it. And what they were, what they were trying to do was to recreate that sense of spiritual um, sustenance that, that had existed at first in England and then in Holland uh, that had bound this group together. And that's what he wanted to sustain. But once they got to America and the population increased and their children wanted land of their own, they started to leave Plymouth Colony. And as that happened, a Plymouth uh, as he says so sadly uh, in his his journal, uh, would be like an abandoned mother, um, as as the rest of uh, of Cape Cod, as the rest of what become Massachusetts became, um, you know, these thriving communities. Uh, uh, the Plymouth, the the beginning of it all, uh, would be left kind of desolate. And so uh, for for Bradford, it was personal. I mean, people he knew, like Winslow and and uh, Standish and all these people would move uh, to other places where there was more land, where it was better for their children. And thus what ended um, what Bradford had hoped to create. We have mentioned in the course of these discussions about the Pilgrims and, and Plymouth Colony, a lot of individuals. Individuals really matter. If uh, the guy who tried to kill FDR and instead killed um, because of an errant shot, killed uh, Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak, if he had been successful in killing FDR, the guy who would have had to lead us through World War II would have been an alcoholic vice president named John Nance Garner. That would have changed history. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think we all lead our lives and we know uh, that individuals matter. Uh, they make it's individual. Yes, there are these great big social movements and things like that. But for me, they're, they're contexts. They're not. I mean, what really makes a difference is what individuals do. And um, and it's 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 I think it's import- important that those stories that, you know, people in their quirks, uh, in their the good, the bad sides of them, that we look at them 
we we look at their characters because I think you know that's the 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 great lessons that history has for us. Nat, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's an amazing story, and I urge people to to read the book Mayflower to get so much more detail. Well, thank you, Gil. It's always great to talk with you. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Winter vacations are right around the corner and airline prices are rising. Hotels and rentals are getting booked for the holidays. We don't want you to be squeezed. So we turn to our friend and CBS News travel editor, Peter Greenberg. Peter, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing just fine. And, uh, you know, bearing down for the holidays. So let's start with something basic. People used to book travel with travel agents, and then with the internet, they moved to sites, you know, Hotels.com, Travelocity, all of that, whole host of other, including sites that monitor all of those sites for deals. And then some airlines and hotels started saying, look, deal directly with us. We'll give you better deals than you see at the travel sites. And now I know people who are throwing up their hands and dealing with actual travel agents, which were considered a few years ago like rotary phones. Uh, so who should I be dealing with to book a vacation? Well, I have news for you. The rotary phones are back bigger than ever because travel agents really proved their worth during COVID when they actually acted as advocates for their clients to get them their money back, among other things, and to get them rebooked. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the conversation. Uh, I don't mind researching fares online. I do it every day. Uh, but I always want a second or a third opinion from a human being who may have access to better inventory that's displayed online. I'll give you an example. How many times have you seen when you go online to make a reservation, either for a hotel or for an airline, only two rooms left, only one seat left? Most of the time, I have to tell you, it's a lie. Because what they're really telling you is there are only two rooms left in the allocation that this particular online travel agency was given by the travel provider, in that case, a hotel or an airline. It's not the total inventory. And so you panic, hit the keystroke, and end up paying more money for a seat that was much more than available than you thought. Okay, so travel agents are like vinyl. They are definitely back. And by the way, they can do something that the online folks can't. They can have a real conversation. They can answer questions like, can my kids stay free? Can can you throw in free parking? Will you not charge me $9 for a bottle of water? And how much is the Wi-Fi? None of that comes up online. You know, you're just driven by the initial posted rate. And then you find out the ka-ching, ka-ching part later, which is not pleasant. All right. Well, let's move on to something else that may not be um, something that, that calls attention to itself if you just go online, which is saving or at least making things easier through airline code share partners. Ah, I will tell you a very funny story that just happened to us. I was researching a fare, a one-way fare from London to Los Angeles. We found one online. I did our research online. On British Airways, you want to guess how much it was? Oh, I don't know, uh, nine hundred. Okay, you're not going to the showcase showdown. It was twenty seven hundred dollars. Oh my gosh! Out, out. But it's about to get better because British Airways is part of the One World Alliance that includes airlines like American and Finnair and Royal Jordanian and Iberia and many others. So what do we do? We went back online to see if any of those other airlines were posting a flight about the same time. Guess what? Iberia, the Spanish carrier, was flying from London to Los Angeles at the same time. Well, what was the fare? $770. That's almost a savings of $2,000. Well, guess what? It was the exact same plane, the exact same flight. 
the exact same coach coach seat, but it was a co-chair partner because how did that happen? When when airlines co-chair, they're given different inventories, and, and depending on who books it, will determine the price they charge and how many people book it. So it's always a good idea to figure out who their co-chair partners are before you go for the first offer that you're given. In this case, we saved about $1,900. Yeah, and that's an amazing amount. So let's go to where people are going. Are countries, for instance, with high inflation, good deals for the American dollar, or too many of those too unstable to take a chance on? Well, you know what? If you take a look at the stability index around the world, even with the conflict in the Middle East, an overwhelming majority of countries are fine to go to and they're safe to go to. Just got to do your homework with State Department advisories. And I also recommend you listen to what the British Foreign Office tells their their citizens about their advisories, and then do one more thing before you make the booking. Go online, find the English language newspaper printed in that country, and look at the last two weeks of issues. You'll get, you know, frontline, cutting-edge information about what's really going on on the local level. Then you make an informed decision. And once you do that, then the power of the U.S. dollar kicks in, not to mention seasonality. So here we are with Thanksgiving coming up. You know what? Europe doesn't know from Thanksgiving. Africa doesn't know from Thanksgiving. Uh, Asia doesn't know from Thanksgiving, and South America doesn't know from Thanksgiving. Uh, Chances are even Antarctica doesn't know from Thanksgiving, (laughs) not just for Thanksgiving week, but for the week after, which in the travel industry is called the dead week. There are two dead weeks every year if you want great deals. One is the week immediately following Thanksgiving, which, of course, is when people are recovering from their dysfunctional family get-together. And the second dead week is the week immediately following New Year's when people are simply just recovering. And so if you can plan strategically, you're going to save a lot of money. If you, want to go to, uh, if you want to go to Europe over Thanksgiving, we've seen fares as low as $500 round trip. In those dead weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there are places you've talked about, you know, checking news sources and things. And that's important because there are places. Well, I'll give you an example. My brother is married to a woman from Ecuador and they had a little place down there, too, which it didn't cost you much to have a little place down there. And they thought about retiring there and everything because three years ago, Ecuador was like, a you know, a little paradise. Now, drug gangs and things, not so much. And its reputation may not have anything to do with what's going on now. And you really have to beware of situations like that. Exactly. And remember, the State Department has four levels of advisories. We're right now in a worldwide alert as a level two advisory. So let me run through them for you so you know. Level one advisory is quite simple. It just means travel with normal caution. I interpret that to mean try not to trip and fall. <laughs> level two, which is where we are now, is travel with increased caution. And with all seriousness here, what they're really saying is situational awareness. They're not telling you not to travel. They're just saying really be aware of where you are, what the situation is there, and you know things that's just to be looking out for. Level three is when people start digging a hole in their basement. That's called reconsidered travel. And level four, there are certain of them around right now. They're called do not travel. Now, remember, all of those four levels are simply advisories. They're not laws. They're not regulations. They're not restrictions. They're not rules. It's still your choice. But you want to make an informed choice. And of the 196 countries that are out there right now, there are only about four or five I wouldn't go to, uh, only because I have no idea who's in control. Other than that, situational awareness, being smart, being commonsensical, 
the world is still your oyster. All right. So what places are overlooked? And again, I, I go to my brother. Uh, he and his wife just spent a couple of weeks in Dubrovnik. They, they had a fabulous time. They loved everything about it. It's not a place that when you're talking about, you know, gee, where do you want to go on your bucket list and things people normally talk about, but they had a fabulous time. So what places are overlooked? Well, actually, Dubrovnik most recently has been overcrowded. You know why? Deranged Game of Thrones fans. And, and you have to be very careful because when you're there, you're walking arm in arm with people you don't even know who are trying to recreate the scenes from that series. So be careful. But the real key here is be, be a, you know, a contrarian traveler. Go in the off season. You're not going to Paris for a suntan. You're going to Paris to immerse yourself in the culture. So you don't have to be there in June, July, and August with everybody else. Same thing applies to the other usual suspects like Italy and Spain. Uh, but then look at some of the other countries like Estonia, Slovenia, Lithuania. They're great at this time of the year. And of course, don't forget, if you really want to be seasonal, all the Christmas markets in, in, in Europe. And we're not just talking London and Paris. We're talking Central Europe and Vienna and all up and down the Danube River and in Germany. That's tremendous. And you do that when? The first two weeks in December, otherwise known as the Dead Weeks. Thank you so much for all of your tips, all of your help. And you can go to petergreenberg.com for more. You got it, guys. Much appreciated. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. In this era of inflation, it would be nice to afford to entertain and still have money for presents, which are also part of this time of year. So how do we entertain on a budget and yet not seem cheap while still, well, you know, being cheap? Ivy Odom is Senior Lifestyle Producer for Southern Living, where you can pick up lots of tips, lots of great recipes. Ivy, good to have you with us. And by the way, in keeping with the theme of the segment, Ivy's agreed to be interviewed without getting paid. So there you go. That is the theme of the day, I think. Hi, Gil. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. So, all right, we're planning a holiday party. We don't want to go overboard. I mean, maybe we just usually don't. Uh, it's you know usually too much pressure and all of that. But especially now, let's face it, a lot of people are balancing many things right now. So when people are thinking about planning a holiday party, what should be the what should they be thinking about? Yes, I know. I I am guilty number one for having too many things going on. So and it's just it's it is doable and holiday parties, I think they seem like they're such a big task, but they really are doable if you give yourself time to plan for them. You are less likely to spend money on the things that you actually don't need if you give yourself time to plan ahead for your parties. And I think whenever you're just initially thinking about your holiday parties from the get-go, think about a smaller gathering because you'll get a lot more bang for your buck that way. Which is a very good idea. And let's underline that point you just made because it was a really good one. You don't want to shop last minute because that's when you end up trying to get everything at one store that may not have the best values. You may end up thinking, oh, if I had just been at, you know, the unnamed store because they didn't buy advertising time, where I could have gotten that for half price, I should have done it. You end up in kind of a panic and you, you do end up overspending. Yes, you do. Planning ahead really is key. And honestly, you can never start planning ahead early enough. One of my favorite things to do, which is applicable kind of after the holiday season, is to take advantage of holiday sales to plan for next year. That's when things are going to be reduced for 50 to 75% off and you can stock up if you have the room that is to store it in your house, but to get things for a really discounted rate to kind of plan ahead for next year. Okay. You want people to be well fed. You've got a large number of people coming over. People now are very specific about what they say they can eat and cannot eat. 
you do have to be prepared for it. And I am a Southerner and Southerners, we know how to, we know a thing or two about feeding a crowd and we will never let a guest go home hungry, regardless of if they have a million dietary restrictions or none. So I really do think it is, you know, a gracious thing to do is to be aware of your guest dietary restrictions, but there are a lot of ways to get around it and still stay on a budget. You can have a grazing board. So we all love charcuterie boards, but whenever you start filling charcuterie boards with high-end meats and cheeses, it can become pretty pricey. So a cool way to kind of take up the real estate on a board is actually to fill it with some dips. Those are great ways to save money. People love a dip, especially during the holiday season, and you can make them ahead, which is a key to making your party hosting in general a lot more stress-free. Really, it's just, it's not about how much money it goes into it. It's all about the thought that counts. So plan ahead and creating a warm and inviting atmosphere is what your party goers are going to remember the most. So just put some thought into it and it will go a long way, a lot further than money will for sure. Ivy Odom is Senior Lifestyle Producer for Southern Living, where you can pick up lots of tips, lots of great recipes, and and just generally have a fine, enjoyable experience, which you can bring over into your own life. Ivy, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Gil. Happy Thanksgiving to you. You're listening to the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.